Hello, I'm Tom Luma. And I'm Jason Comstock. And welcome to We Happy Few, our podcast that allows veterans and their families to tell their stories. Stories that will cover a broad spectrum of lived experiences, from time in service to the return home and beyond. Experiences shared with the hope that all listeners will better understand the sometimes complicated lives of veterans and their families. Thank you for listening to We Happy Few. In this episode, my guest host Amy Donaldson and I have a very candid and insightful discussion with Bart Thomason, whose Army career spans the front lines of the Cold War to Afghanistan to Africa. My name is Bart Thomason. I come from Kaysville up north. I was born there, built a house there, growed my children's there, got a whiff. Still, I'm homesteading. I joined the military in 1986, right after graduating from Weber State. I have a degree in history, and then I majored in poli-sci too, so they're not like massively lucrative career options there. But uh, anyway, I, I, I joined the Army I chose the the tanks. I was in the 2nd Armored Division, and I wanted to go to Germany. I'd studied history all my life, and I wanted to go and see the things I'd read about. I went to uh, basic training in Fort Leonard Wood, uh, Missouri. Then I went to uh, OCS at Fort Benning, Georgia. And after 90-day wonder, I became a second lieutenant and uh, uh, shipped off to Germany. I remember one of the transformative things in my life. I was flying to uh, northern Germany to um, to Hamburg. And so midway, I remember we're over the Atlantic, and uh, all of a sudden everything changed into German. And I could not understand anything. And it freaked me out. And uh, we landed in Hamburg, and there were supposed to be some guys waiting for me, and nobody was there. I had no clue how to communicate with anybody or what to do, and I felt totally vulnerable. Because of that incident, it spurred me to learn language. So today I speak French and German, and it's because of that. Because previous to that experience, I was pretty um, English is best. I don't need to learn anything. I'm just, you know, they want to speak to me. They learn English. That kind of stupid mentality, right? But it, it changed my entire worldview. So yeah, I was in Germany. I was in northern Germany. Um, it was during the Cold War. For, I was there from 86 to 89. Uh, just before I left Germany, just before the Berlin Wall fell. I was in Berlin multiple times during the Soviet occupation. It was a striking thing to see the difference between East and West. I, I always choose imagery of black and white because West Berlin during that time period in the 1980s, in my view, was the most vibrant city in the world. It was an amazing city. It was beautiful. It was pumping with energy. And as soon as you went across into, uh, into East Berlin, it was literally like going into a black and white world. Everything was so stark and so bleak and literally gray that it was shocking. You'd go into a, a store and they, and, and they would have, for example, shoes. And so you think, ah, oh, nice leather shoes. I'll go in. You go in and there was nothing to buy. So they just had them for display. You say, can I buy a display pair? And they say, no. Store after store, and this was in East Germany, which was the richest of all the Soviet bloc nations. Anyway, it was shocking, and it kind of left an imprint on me, the uh, perils of communism, if you will. 
Right before I left, I, I was in East Berlin when Reagan signed the uh, Alt-2 Accords, the intermediate-range missile things with Gorbachev in Iceland. That was a shocking thing. I remember listening to that as I was doing it, thinking, this is going to change the world. This is going to change the world. And it did, because right after that, everything started to go for the Soviets. And, you know, Poland went up and... All of a sudden, we had refugees coming across the border into West Germany, where I lived. And by the time I was leaving, it was a thousand a day. A thousand people were crossing over from Hungary and from Austria and from East Germany into West Germany. And there are all these from these communist countries. And it was just a flood, thousands and thousands and thousands. And I, I remember thinking, it's over. Communism's done. And it was. It was shocking. And then when the, when the wall came down, it was like, holy cow. I was really happy when that happened. That was an, it was an amazing thing. And uh, for multiple reasons, for the Germans and for, for the West, for my country, because it was the end of the Cold War. We had won. That was a great feeling. The U.S. military has undergone many changes to how we train and fight throughout the history of our country. Comparing how our warriors prepared and fought before the end of the Cold War to how our warriors prepare and fight post 9-11 provides a picture into some of the most drastic changes ever to have occurred for our armed forces in order to remain superior in the world as we know it today. I think it's a massive difference in almost every respect. So when when you and I were in the second armored division, uh, regular combat division, which does not exist anymore, it should be noted, Patton's division is no longer existing. It's really sad. Anyway, that's, a, that's another thing. But yeah, regular army combat arms is an intense way to live. It's all encompassing, you know. And so when we would roll out, we had to be ready with within two hours to fight five million Warsaw Pact soldiers. And we were always loaded, over 50 rounds in our tanks, and we, we were ready to go. And we were sure we were going to die. There was no way we were going to live through that. We, we all knew that. So that was not a cheery prospect. However, you know, we had a purpose. It was all good. Um, but that, that intensity of, of uh, living on your tank and, you know, never showering and, and being cold and miserable, I mean, it takes an impact on you as opposed to now I'm in the National Guard in intelligence. So uh, it's, it's shocking because when you're in the combat arms, you are trained to – and I was an officer as well. So now I'm an NCO. So that, that's a huge, huge difference. All, all of those things – give me a perspective that perhaps is somewhat unique, but also just um, bizarre because what we were training for in the Cold War was to defeat a peer nation, which had the, the absolute ability to destroy our nation and everyone associated with it and vast amounts of people all over the globe, as opposed to what we're doing now where we're fighting these, these terrorists and um, who have no intrinsic threat or they, they cannot threaten us, our, the, our way of life. I guess in our, our way of life, yes, they can, but not, not the, the destruction of our country. That is not within their capability. They can't do it. So the, the asymmetric versus the force-on-force force, uh, way that we fight and the, the mentality that goes along that and the idea that you're going to lose millions of people as opposed to, what did we say in the last 12 years, 5,000 Americans have died? That's kind of shocking, right, when you think about things because a lot of people, they, they have this – this is 
a little bit of an ancillary subject, but I think it's important that people people freak out about the death of a soldier. And every day, I mean, last year, what do we use? 50,000 people to opio, opioid crisis? Holy cow. That's as many as in Vietnam. Almost. Right? And yet, Something because you're wearing the uniform that gives you a, a a type of sacredness to the nation, and and that's good. It should be, but perspective is important. There's what 330 million of us, and we're over there fighting this asymmetric war. It's different. It's it's very very different. When I was in. Well, I had volunteered, but it was not far removed from the draft. So a little bit, but but now everybody in as they volunteer as they raise their arm. They know that they are going to go to a war zone. Now, when I was in the Cold War, I really, I mean, there was the, the potential, but for 50 years, we had been in the Cold War and we had not directly fought the Soviets. So I didn't have the, the uh, expectation that I was going to fight, as you say, Ivan. But when I came in again after, after 9-11, I knew and I wanted to go fight, to fight for my country. I wanted to. I didn't come in to get the GI Bill. I mean, that, that's good, but I had already got my degree. I, that was not my purpose. My purpose was to be of service. I mean, when I got out the first time in 89, two years later, my unit was in frigging Kuwait, and I felt guilty that I wasn't there. If I had known, I would never have gotten out, even though I was burned out at the time. I would not. And so after we got attacked, and I was like, I've got a skill set. I can do it. I can go in. And I did. I think this is a great time to take a break and hear from the businesses that are making this podcast possible. If you support us and what we are doing, please support them. Hi, I'm Amy Donaldson. And I'm Jason Lee. Listen to our free podcast, Voices of Reason, unless you enjoy screaming matches. Nope, you're not going to hear that with us. You'll hear folks who may disagree, but seek to understand different views. That's Voices of Reason on the KSL Radio app or wherever you find interesting podcasts. In a time where almost everything we encounter as a nation seems to be motivated by knee-jerk political decisions, we must ask the question, are we putting our warriors and our society at risk simply to satisfy one body politic or another? Now let's get back to the story. I was in Afghanistan for a long time, about three and a half years, and, and we periodically would get attacked. You know, I was on a major base most of the time, but, you know, I still get attacked every once in a while. It's weird. And everybody has a designated spot to go to where you're supposed to defend. So this uh, alert would go out and everybody would respond. And, you you know, you pick up your M16, you grab your, your flak vest and your helmet and you go, even if you're just in your underwear. Doesn't You don't have to be in uniform. You just go to your spot. So that's cool. I, I you know, I did that several times. But it's interesting because... We would, when I was in the, the Cold War, we would mound up on our tanks. We would have spontaneous alerts. Uh, you know, it's like two in the morning, and I get a phone call from somebody, and they say, you know, whatever the code word is, ice bear. And you, you, you go, and in two hours, you're rolling out the gate fully loaded, and you don't know if you're coming back or not. Probably not. But at the same time, that's, that was the idea. But when we would go to these places like in, Af in Afghanistan, go to our spot. You got there and you're sitting there hunkered in with your troops, with your guys. And one of the things that was so weird is the army has changed in a significant way. And in, and I, in my view, it's a very negative thing. We are, a, we are, we have a whole generation from top to bottom, from flag grade officers down to the basic trainee who is taught from the very beginning now 
20 plus years of this, that safety is the most important element of, of your commitment. Everything from the time you go into basic training is about safety, safety, safety. Drink water, wear your protective belt. Have you done your, your risk assessment? All the stuff. Safety, safety, safety. Okay, so in the Cold War, we didn't talk about that. We had our mission and we went and did our mission and nobody really talked about those things. We didn't have safety belts. We didn't have risk assessments per se. It was not a thing that officers had to do. So here I'm in Afghanistan, right? The perimeter has been breached and literally 50% of the guys standing next to me are wearing their bright orange and fluorescent green safety belt. That's an issue in my opinion. And it's something that was mandated in a war zone that all soldiers had to wear all the time. That's insane. I resisted that. I got punished for not wearing my safety belt by my first sergeant. In any case, that's a, that's a contrast. That's a huge contrast, and it shows you something. And, and in my view, it's one of the reasons why you can spend 12 years in a country and not win. I don't think we've lost, but we haven't definitely won. And, and there's, there's something to be said about this idea that we are so afraid to lose a soldier— under any circumstances, an accident or combat or whatever, that you will sacrifice a larger mission to accomplish this political, I would say, goal. Because the, the people at home are so mortified by the loss of a soldier. And of course, everybody who's raised their hand, they, they know that that is a potentiality and they're willing to do it. I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to die. I have no problem with that. And I think 90 plus percent of my brothers and sisters feel the exact same way. That's a contrast for you. You're not the first person to talk about this, in, including my father, uh, this idea that um, once you kind of surrender to this idea that you're not coming back, that it's not about your safety, that it's about your duty. Absolutely. Um, you're actually safer. Uh, does that impact sort of decision making when you're there, when you're in the situation? In the I, situation? I think so. I, I remember when I was in Afghanistan, there came a point where I just felt that kind of a thing. But I'm totally down with what your, your papa says. That is exactly right. Not every mission assigned to our military lives in the headlines. Our service to the world is often done without much fanfare, yet it has a far-reaching diplomatic and humanitarian impact. So I'm still in the Army. I'm still in the National Guard. I'm still an intel guy. I still do missions all the time. Um, I'm in Africa most of the time uh, interpreting. Not a lot of people, especially Americans, go to Africa. Um, I think it's eye-opening. I think it's brain-opening to go there. And not just for the traditional reasons that, you know, oh, there's poor people and look how miserable they are. You know, there's poor people everywhere. You can go to, to Los Angeles and you can see the same conditions that you see. I mean, literally, like the third world now in some parts of Southern California. It's not like that. You know, a lot of people go on these missions and it's like uh, it's, you go over there and you give some soccer balls to people and you come home and you, how great am I? It's not like that for me. When I go to places, I talk to people because I, I, most of the places I'm going are francophone. They're French-speaking, and that's my gig. So I talk to them. I talk to them in language, and not only does it improve my language skills, but it lets me understand their culture. It lets me understand where they are, and, and, and they tell me their lives, and it's awesome. It's so cool to speak to people from all different, um, you know, rich people to poor people. And Africa is incredibly stratified, as I'm sure you know. There are hyper-rich people in Africa, hyper-educated people in Africa that, you know, they're, they're trained in Europe and then they come back and they live like royalty in their homelands. And then there's the poor, I mean, but all of them have stories to tell and they're, they're, they're just 
fascinating and so fun and so mind-opening. That's the word I want to use. When you reflect on sort of your career, do you have regrets about how you opened your mind or do you have, are you glad, like are you grateful for certain paths you took? If I were to do it again, knowing what I know, when, when I got out of the Army the first time, regular Army, I made a big mistake. I didn't resign my commission and that's why uh, I got passed over somehow when I, my name was just on a list and I thought I was out of the Army and so I had to come back as an NCO. I probably wouldn't do that, even though, in retrospect, being in the intel world, officers are are not used well in intelligence. It's not like when I was in the tanks. When we were in the tanks, we were with our guys. We led our people, and we did things that our guys did, and we did them better than our guys did so we could show them what to do. But in the intel world, it's not like that. Uh, intelligence officers are not trained to be specialists in what they do. They're managers. And so that is terrible. It puts the officers in a really bad place because it's very difficult to manage people effectively to lead people when you don't technically know what they do. I remember, for example, I was I, I, I taught an intelligence course here in Utah for a while and we, we do these mock interrogations because that's what I do. So so we're, we have these booths and these guys are, we're, we're watching them and uh, we're seeing how they're doing the thing. We're taking notes and we're going to critique them later. And this colonel comes in. So you've got the book and they sign on Colonel blah, blah, you know, and he comes in. He's an intelligence colonel, a field grade officer. And he's watching for a few minutes and, and he's like, so this is what an interrogation is like. I'm like, sir, this is nothing what a real interrogation is like. This is just training, and it's nothing like a real interrogation. But he, he was a field grade officer. He had no clue in intel. Oh, my God. It's like if, if I was a battalion commander of my tanks, and I was like watching somebody load around into the breach, I was like, so that's what it's like to load around. I was like, my God, that's pathetic. Is it not? Anyway, so yeah. it's, it's mixed because I'm glad that I am an NCO because I get to do things I, that is real. You had mentioned before, yeah. if you knew then what you knew now, you'd do some things differently. For sure. What are some of the things that came out of it that you wouldn't do differently? I'm really glad for the time that I have spent in country, like in, in Afghanistan. I, I, I have a, a little bit different thing there as well because I did 18 months as a, as a trooper and then I went back for two years as a contractor. A lot of people hate contractors and you, you hear about that in the media, you know, mercenary and I, I, I remember seeing that. But almost all contractors are, are ex-soldiers. But uh, everybody I was with were soldiers. I mean, we're all soldiers. We're in civilian. And when I was, when I was over there as a trooper, we were all dressed in civilian and beards and all that kind of stuff. So I looked exactly the same and I was doing roughly the same job, but just getting paid better. <laughs> so, so anyway, that, that, that's one thing I would definitely not change. Um, I would not change the, my, my language stuff. I'm passionate about my languages. I would not change that. I would not change the travel that I've had. I would not change the comradeship that I have developed. The, the, you go serve in a war zone with somebody. And even if you're not you know, fixing bayonets and charging trenches, there's something about that experience that is transformative and, and, and molds you together. I mean, it puts you together. You see somebody that you, that you were in that kind of situation with a year later, two years later, and, you know, you hug that guy. Anyway, you, you know, there's, it's always that way. You just feel a bond with that person. It's, and that's, that's pretty amazing. So I definitely wouldn't change that. 
Would you uh, have any reservations about your soon-to-be grandchild uh, joining the military? Not at all. In fact, my, my daughter is a captain in the Air Force right now. She's a nurse. She's down in Henderson right now. And I had recommended that she do that. And it has been very good for her. And I think she has learned uh, some real leadership skills, some character skills that I think are long-term and much more profound. So it's been a good gig for her. And I would definitely say, yeah, people should uh, come into the military. Join us again for the next episode of We Happy Few. If you have comments about the show, please contact us via email at tips at loudmouthproject.com or on Twitter at loudmouthjason or loudmouthtom. Check out our website at www.loudmouthproject.com and navigate to the We Happy Few page. You can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and other places where you find interesting shows. Be sure to review our show as well. We love to get your feedback, and it helps us grow our audience. We would like to thank our producer and editor, Josh Tilton, and our creative director, Amy Donaldson, for adding the spit and polish to our show. Remember that the more we allow ourselves to listen, the more we allow ourselves to learn. I'm Tom Luma. And I'm Jason Comstock. And until next time, keep listening, keep learning, and stay engaged. We Happy Few is a production of the Loudmouth Project.